Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. The first week of November 1901, shipping records published in the Times of London featured regular updates such as this one. The Armenian left Port Natal for Bombay on November 3 with Boer prisoners, 36 officers and 981 men. They were escorted by the following. 67th Battery, Major Manifold, Captain Tapp, Lieutenants Shepherd, 2nd Lieutenants Newland, Russell and 157 men. 69th Battery, Captain Belcher, Lieutenants Clark, Herbert, 2nd Lieutenants Shaw and 156 men. The Times continued to list a contingent of 350 men in total to guard just over a thousand Boers. Then the Times says, The Menes has arrived at Gibraltar from Alexandria, bringing 109 officers and men of the 1st Derbyshire Regiment for South Africa. They will wait at Gibraltar for the Manhattan, which will take these troops to South Africa. Still there came thousands of troops from across the empire, many serving more than one tour of duty in Africa. And through late October and into November 1901, the British press began to paint the war in South Africa as never-ending. The editorials for most part until this period, and the Conservative press in particular, had been in full support of the Anglos fighting the Boers, but a series of embarrassing reports from the country led to an appraisal of both the strategy and the tactics. It was Barkenlachter, where General Louis Boerter had decimated Lieutenant Colonel Benson's mounted column, leaving the British with almost 350 casualties and the colonel dead. It was General Jan Smuts who'd cornered a company of 17th Lancers, killing or wounding almost the entire unit of 167. These figures shocked the public back home, who had believed the final phase was underway, where a handful of bandits, as they were known, who were hiding in the vast felt, would be tracked down and killed or imprisoned. The bitter end of this war is upon us. And it was troops like those on the Mendes who still faced a focused enemy in the Boers who had nowhere to go and were fighting for their survival. Another battle that had shaken the British resolve back home involved the famous Robert Kekovich. If you remember our previous podcast, Kekovich made his name during the siege period at the start of the war in 1899 through to the second quarter of 1900. He was officer and commanded Kimberley. Remember his to and fro with the arch-imperialist Cecil John Rhodes? Yet for all the bad blood there, Robert Kekovich was a hero in the eyes of the English back home. As the hours of daylight shortened in England, as the autumn dappled dark light settled into the grey of winter, the gloom quickened when it came to citizens' perception of the South African war. Lord Kitchener's strategy was to cordon off the felt in the most important parts of South Africa and then squeeze the Boer commandos. This was paying off in places, but one place where it backfired was the Western Transvaal. Kitchener had removed troops from there to join those in the Free State and Eastern Transvaal. Over 63,000 English soldiers were touring the felt. But this left a gap west of the Michalisburg. A gap into which General Coeurs de la Rey inserted his tiny force with some success. The landscape here is fascinating. It's like a fairyland for unconventional troops. It is a wild country of thick thorny bush, sudden deep ravines leading to sunken rivers. Travelling through the area today you were immediately struck by the geology where the limestone caves can be found, and plate pressures pushed conglomerate and sandstone into sharp-topped mountains. The Boers could hide in these ravines and appear as though by magic, then disappear as quickly. However, the British discovered they could do this too, and thus the daily game of cat and mouse developed. By the end of September 1901, though, Kekovich had become thoroughly sick and tired of these bad lands. His columns were often strung out, 
His artillery could not be brought to bear. His scouts were being picked off by Delaray's roving scouts. Eighteen months after the siege of Kimberley had ended, Robert Kekovich had been marching across the landscape, virtually a forgotten leader. Delaray's next act was to change that. It was 29 September when Kekovich's 1,000-strong column pitched their camp on the farm Moodville, close to the Solons River. That was about 10 miles west of the town of Machalisberg, heading towards Swartruchens on the Zerost Road, which takes you to Bechuana land then, or modern Botswana. Kekovich, for all his caution, made three bad mistakes that day. The first was to underestimate the Boer movement, believing they were far from his column. The second was to base his camp 50 feet below the level of broken ground, and the third was to situate his camp in an open space. There was absolutely no cover for the men, unless they made it down to the river a hundred meters or so away. The Boers, you see, had been stalking him for a week. It was hard to notice, with these winding deep rivers and overgrown thick ravines, the broken ground. So the second last day of the first month of spring, found General de la Rey issuing an order to some of his men to enter the ravine and to move up the winding river by foot and then to lie in wait. Kekovich was soon to join a list of siege commanders who would face criticism for their military leadership. Take Lord Baden-Powell, for instance. The hero of Mafikeng, who had started the World Scout Movement, had not covered himself in glory in the second part of this war, unfortunately. He had failed to lead his men effectively after the Battle of Diamond Hill, then had failed even more miserably in finding and supporting Colonel Haw at the Battle of Elans River in August 1900. I covered that battle last year, but to remind you, that's where Baden-Powell took the decision to evacuate Rustenburg, while Colonel Haw was surrounded and shelled by a large force led by Delaray, General de Vett, who was about to be captured, managed to escape through the Macalisberg Range along a route previously policed by Baden-Powell. Yes, we know historians are big on 2020 hindsight, but just to say that all major writers believe that de Vett's escape actually extended the whole war. And Baden-Powell's decision at that time made little sense. It appeared panicky. Back to Kekovich, the man who'd suffered months of Rhodes's odious verbal assaults and insinuations, was still the man who held the line in Kimberley against all odds. Stoic and yielding, he needed to be considering what was to come. So Kekovich and his 1,000 men were camped at Mutville, and a short distance away, De La Rey's men secretly took up positions behind rocks strung along part of the riverbank. One of De La Rey's scouts, Commandant Bosov, decided he'd take the opportunity while the camp slept to do some intelligence gathering. I managed to track down a report into this battle published by the Bathurst Free Press and Mining Journal of New South Wales and Australia. The special correspondent, whose name is not mentioned, reports, Commandant Bassov, one of the most daring scouts they've ever had, actually crept into the camp before the attack began and was shot dead by a sergeant of the Derbyshires whilst engaged in collecting the bandoliers and rifles of the sleeping soldiers. The shooting of Bassov must have taken place as the Boers were discovered hiding amongst the rocks. You see, British Colonel Kekovich was calm, cool under pressure. He was also known as vigilant, and on the morning of 30th of September, his vigilance paid off with mixed results. A scouting party he'd sent overnight discovered the Boers at about 4.45am, just as the first flicker of the light of dawn broke, and as Bosov fiddled about, having crawled into the British camp. It was Kekovich's leadership now that proved how tough he really was. The Boers immediately attacked in the pre-dawn hours, Yet his men did not yield. It was gory. 
Commandant Kemp, for example, led the 500 men of this attack personally, crawling under cover of the trees and crossing the Solons River. They clambered up from the riverbed and overpowered the British picket line on the perimeter. One post, for example, comprised a sergeant and 12 men of the Derbyshires, which was wiped out. Some of the pickets were mutilated in signs of terrible deathly struggles, with the men's own bayonets stuck in their bodies. There were members of the Derbyshires, the Scottish Horse and the Yeomanry, but all declined to panic. Ninety minutes of hard fighting followed, and a Victoria Cross for the young trooper called William Bees, who ran through Boer bullets to fetch water from the river, to cool the all-important Maxim machine gun, and for his wounded men. Born in Somerset, he was 29 years old and a private in the 1st Battalion, the Derbyshire Regiment. That, of course, would be renamed later as the Sherwood Foresters. The official VC commendation goes, Private Bees was one of the Maxim Gun Detachment, which had seen six of the nine men shot by the Boers. Hearing his wounded comrades asking for water, he went forward under a heavy fire to a sprite held by Boers about 500 yards ahead of the gun and brought back a kettle full of water. In going and returning, he had to pass within 100 yards of some rocks also held by Boers, and the kettle which he was carrying was hit by several bullets. Ironically, he may have hastened the end of some of his comrades, as all operationally trained paramedics know, you do not allow the critically wounded to drink water, merely wet their lips. Drinking, you see, hastens anaphylactic shock and a quick death. Then Colonel Kekovich was shot twice, but he refused to stop fighting. His outlying pickets had been annihilated. Still, his column would not retreat. Only one 16-pounder was still in operation and was now manned by farriers and drivers, the original detachment all dead or wounded. That gun fired over 80 rounds in the next hour. The British defence was unexpected and the Boers began to waver. Meanwhile, on a hill about a mile away, General Cours de la Rey was watching the battle with increased concern with a 500-strong group of reinforcements. He then noticed the movement of British troops on his flank. A major of the Derbyshires managed to round up cooks, orderlies and other non-combatants handing out rifles. Then he led them in a flanking manoeuvre beyond the Boers. That unnerved Delaray, who gave the order to retreat and the Boers melted away. The casualty rate on both sides was heavy. General Delaray lost 60 men. Kekovich, 200, including 28 officers and virtually every animal was shot down. Kekovich himself suffered from two bullet wounds. All around lay dead and dying men and animals, and the sight as described by old soldiers is one of the most gruesome they've ever seen, writes the correspondent. Afterwards, the British searched Commandant Bosov's body, he who'd crept into their camp. In one of his pockets was found a plan of the camp, a fact which lends colour to the assertion of one of the Boers wounded that Bosov had the previous day been all through the camp dressed in khaki, writes the special correspondent. There was some executing to do afterwards. A German fighting for the Boers was accused of shooting a rifle from the end of which a white flag flew. He was then noticed to shoot and then hoist the flag more than once and when captured made the ridiculous explanation that he was neutral, continues our correspondent. His case was inquired into by a board and he was condemned to be shot. I saw the sentence carried out at sunrise this morning the body of the wretched creature being interred close to one of the ruined houses. His grave and the others remain on the farm to this day. Delaray withdrew without managing to seize the all-important supplies he needed, including ammunition. Kekovich was stymied, 
until he could replace his mules and horses. And two weeks later, he continued the hunt for Delaray and Commandant Kemp. It was nearly the end of October when Lord Methuen was roped in by Kekovich, and together they continued to follow General Delaray. Methuen also led a column of 1,000 British troops gathered to finish off the slippery Boer commander. Didn't quite work out that way. On a thickly wooded hill called Kleinfontein, Delaray would manage to secure his all-important supplies. You see, that's where Methuen's rearguard was caught by Delaray's commando of 500 men and chopped to bits. The Boer general made off with 12 wagons full of food, ammunition, clothing and other important supplies. The war was now entering its third year and it was a depressing picture for all involved. Huge areas of South Africa were now silent, fruitless like a desert. Bereft of human population, scarred by burning and dotted with the carcasses of thousands of head of cattle and sheep. In Pretoria, Lord Kitchener was assailed by one bad piece of news after another. He did succeed in obtaining a declaration of martial law in the Cape Colony by October 1901, and at the beginning of November he proposed that the British begin transporting the women of the concentration camps who were listed as irreconcilable overseas. But the British government denied the British officer commanding's permission, concerned about the effect of propaganda in Europe. Lord Kitchener began to grumble to Lord Roberts in England that hunting the Boers was more difficult than hunting Greek or Italian bandits. The nights of November 8th, 9th and 10th saw terrible thunderstorms wreaking havoc in Pretoria, where Kitchener was based. Also in Pretoria was Boer spy Johanna van Warmelo, who you've heard from intermittently. She wrote in her diary, This terrific storm has been raging for hours. It seems incredible. While I write, the roar of thunder never breaks off. Peel after peel, crash after crash, vivid dazzling flashes of lightning, torrents of rain mixed with hail, and a howling wind. Such a night is never to be forgotten. The magnificence of what's known as the Haarfeld thunderstorm still makes one tremble with its theatric grandeur and deadly deluge. In fact, we had one last night. But for Johanna, there was an important reason to fear these storms. Around 6,000 women and children were living pretty much in the open and flimsy tents in the concentration camps nearby. I want to go mad with the thought of thousands and thousands of women and tender little children exposed to all this fury. That was on the 8th of November, and that night four different cells of cumulonimbus pulverized Pretoria. Everyone commented on how bad it had been, and of course, the storm represented South Africa's war, tearing itself apart week after week. No one appeared to want to blink just yet. In the Cape, bandit-in-chief General Jan Smuts had split his force after many engagements with the British, deciding that the two smaller units had a better chance to survive. Smuts placed Commandant van Deventer in charge of one group of around 150, and he took command of the other. Our narrator, Denise Reitz, was part of the Rake Section Scouting Unit, and he'd been ordered to remain with Smuts. This was double jeopardy for the youngster. General Smuts was the main quarry for General French and Haig, who now made it their personal duty to hunt him down. Rates was living on borrowed time, our narrator. He'd been sashaying around the felt in the uniform of Lord Vivian of the 17th Lancers, including wearing the man's cavalry tunic. In modern warfare, if you're caught wearing the enemy's uniform, the rules of engagement allow for execution as a spy. Rates appeared ignorant about Kitchener's edict that all Boers wearing British car keys should be shot immediately and had escaped capture a number of times. Had the British seized him dressed as he was, it would have been the firing squad at dawn for him 
and we wouldn't have his amazing story published after the war. Luckily for us, and for Rates, he eventually got the message. But that is a story for next week. Also next week, we will meet Sarah Rahl, a Boer woman who was taken prisoner during the guerrilla phase of the war, then escaped from Springfontein concentration camp and ended up radicalized, armed with a rifle, bandolier and ammunition, joining Commandant Liebert's rebels as a Boer soldier. Her story alone is worth a Hollywood movie. You'll appreciate her depth of compassion for her people and for black South Africans, which is ironic considering. But it is her conflicted feelings about the British, which is even more contradictory, particularly after one firefight when she witnesses a British soldier crying over the body of his brother and bursts into tears herself. So until then, please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can and post a review if you have the time. Or send me a direct message on Twitter at Des Latham or through my website, abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>